Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse on the palatial estate of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to Episode 8 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. You know, Drew, I was thinking I need to have some kind of trademark sign-on, you know, that I do at the beginning of every episode. You know, Liz Covard on Ben Franklin's World, you know, this podcast on early American history, she's got this, hello, and welcome to Ben Franklin's World. You know, I need something like that. Uh, Anyway, Drew, can you believe that we have eight episodes in the books already? Uh, I mean, honestly, no, it's been a great time uh, thus far. We've had some outstanding conversations with a wide variety of thinkers from all sorts of fields. Uh, And after today, we only have two more episodes left in the season. So I think we've set out to do what we were hoping to do. And we're continuing to demonstrate why history matters. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, if and and if you're out there listening, if you're enjoying the podcast, you want to give us some momentum as we finish this season and move into our season next fall. Please download episodes. Go over to iTunes or uh, uh, thewayofimprovement.com, the website. Uh, subscribe. Tell your friends about us. Write a review. Uh, this will help us keep things moving, and it'll also help us to uh, track the kind of guests uh, that we have been getting. We can continue that momentum in getting sort of top quality guests, kind of like the guests we have on today, who we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, So, Drew, uh, last time we talked, you were on the spring conference tour. Uh, How is that going? Well, so far, so good. I'm heading to Providence, Rhode Island this weekend to participate in a conversation and workshop on public history. Uh, in fact, the work we're doing right now here on the podcast is uh, part of what earned me that invitation. But I know you just got back from Providence. How was the uh, OAH? That's right. It seems for some reason this spring, Providence, Rhode Island is the place for conferences. Uh, I was at the Organization of American Historians Conference, which is the big national conference for all American historians in Providence. We were up there covering it. 
uh, for the blog. We don't have a press pass or anything, but some of you familiar with the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, www.thewayofimprovement.com, you know that we uh, really pride ourselves in our blogging coverage of con- of conferences. So I wrote some posts. We had um, three correspondents. I want to give a shout out to Michael David Cohen at the University of Tennessee and the editor of the uh, James K. Polk papers down there. Elise Neal, a graduate student at Baylor, working on a great project on uh, the Sunday school movement in the 19th century. And then Dan Rober, a, a PhD student actually in religion at Florida State. They wrote some great posts. Head over to thewayofimprovement.com. Check out those posts. Uh, again, we have all kinds of reports from the conference floor. I had some coffee with people, made some new friends, saw a lot of old friends, talked to some publishers. I chaired a session, a really interesting session, on teaching religion in uh, schools and universities. Uh, Mark Silk from uh, the Religion Center uh, at uh, Trinity College in Hartford, and then Diane Moore from Harvard Divinity School were talking about what you can and can't do in sort of public settings in teaching religion in American history. So that was really good. I went to a great session, uh, Drew. Some of you have been following the tweets and you've commented on the tweets related to this session. Uh, It was on Kevin Cruz of Princeton University, his book, One Nation Under God, about the relationship between religion and capitalism and the forging of the idea that America is somehow a Christian nation. And it, it was so interesting because one of the commentators was Catherine Lofton from Yale University, who's really trained in religion, while Cruz is a historian. So it was really interesting ta- seeing uh, Lofton sort of critique Cruz's book uh, based on her perspective as a religious studies scholar. And, and then, you know, in a sort of very uncomfortable way, kind of calling out historians for, uh, for some different things about their understanding of religion. I'm not sure I bought into it all, but it was just an interesting and entertaining uh, session to watch. So let's shift gears here. Let's talk about our episode today. Absolutely. We hit the big time. Today we have our first Pulitzer Prize winner on the show. That's right. Uh, as well as a real celebrity in the history podcasting world, right? As some of our listeners know, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed won the Pulitzer Prize in history for her book, The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family, in which she makes a compelling argument that indeed Jefferson was the father of the Sally Hemings children. Uh, And then we have Peter Onif. Uh, Of course, many of you who listen to history podcasts know him as the 18th century guy on the uh, Backstory with the American History Guys podcast. So I think fans of uh, these history podcasts will recognize his voice right away when he comes on. Uh, Of course, Onif is a great scholar in his own right. He's also the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Chair of History at University of Virginia. And it doesn't get any better than that when you're writing about Jefferson and you hold an endowed chair uh, at the university that Jefferson founded. So again, I'm not sure it gets any better than that, Drew. Yeah, absolutely. We're real excited. But before we get to the interview, you've had some conversations about Jefferson in the past, so I think you have a story for us. I was recently giving a lecture to a group of well-informed history buffs at a well-known historical library. 
During the question and answer session following the lecture, someone asked a question about Thomas Jefferson and slavery. During the course of the discussion, someone in the audience, not the person who asked the question, but another person in the audience, mentioned Jefferson's words in his notes on the state of Virginia, the, the only book that Jefferson published, by the way, uh, about the inherent cultural and intellectual inferiority of Africans. Uh, Jefferson was very, very clear that Africans were inferior, of course, to whites, but also even to Native Americans. The person who asked the original question followed up with another question. She asked what Jefferson would have thought about having a United States president of African descent. Her question seemed to imply that Jefferson might have strongly opposed Barack Obama because as an African-American, Obama was not perhaps civilized enough to run the country effectively. When I suggested that we would never know how Jefferson might have responded to the prospect of an Obama presidency, the woman seemed genuinely surprised. Now, what this audience member failed to understand was that the early American world had a profoundly different understanding of race from what we have today. She wanted to take Jefferson's world and apply it to the 21st century world in which she lived, as if nothing had happened in American history and in the history of American race relations between the age of Jefferson and the age of Obama. Those who know how to think historically will recognize her error as a failure to understand the concept of change over time. If our guests in this episode, Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onif, are correct, and I, frankly I think they are, this woman's questions also failed to grasp one of the important dimensions of Jefferson's worldview, the idea of progress. In other words... I think Thomas Jefferson himself may have been slightly surprised by this woman's question. To understand Jefferson in his 18th century context is to understand a man who was morally troubled, if not opposed, to the institution of slavery, even as he found himself caught up in it. Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment. In this sense, he knew that slavery was a backward institution that could not last in a country defined in his words, by the idea that all men are created equal. At the same time, his Enlightenment belief in progress was not as fast-moving or as radical as his 21st century critics would want it to be. Jefferson knew progress in the form of emancipation of the slaves was coming, but he saw it as a long-term process, a process that, perhaps selfishly on his part, would not be seen in his generation. During his life, he was thus content with treating his slaves in a kind, enlightened, and patriarchal fashion. For Jefferson, it appears, progress seemed to be some kind of magical force that would eventually descend upon the American Republic, but it was not something that required action on his part. The question of slavery is just one of several Jeffersonian legacies that we continue to grapple with today. Jefferson's life reminds us that the human beings we study and read about in the past are complex. Human behavior does not easily conform to our present-day social, cultural, political, religious, or economic categories. 
Jefferson was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. He was the author of the Virginia Statute on Religious Liberty, one of the greatest statements on religious freedom in the history of the world. He was a champion of education and founder of the University of Virginia, one of the great public universities in the United States. As a politician, he defended the rights of common people, and he staunchly opposed big and centralized governments that threatened individual liberties. As president, he doubled the size of the United States and made every effort to keep the country out of war with Great Britain. He was a slaveholder. He needed his slaves in order to uphold the kind of Virginia planter lifestyle, complete with all its consumer goods and luxury items that he could not live without. He was in constant debt. He was the father of several children born to his slave Sally Hemings. In recent years, controversies have arisen over just how much we should celebrate Jefferson's legacy. Some wonder whether his views on slavery overshadow his political accomplishments. Many think he was a hypocrite. Others have valorized him as a great defender of white liberty and white human rights. It is easy to make moral judgments about Jefferson, but I am not convinced that casting moral judgment or praise on Jefferson get us very far in our attempt at understanding him. This, the practice of understanding, is the primary work of the historian. When we try to understand Jefferson on his own terms, in his own 18th century world, and not on our 21st century terms, we make better sense of the choices and decisions that he made. Modern-day pundits will always use Jefferson to make this or that political point in the present. But historians know the modern-day cherry-pickers will never do justice to the man until they immerse themselves in his 18th and early 19th century life. This kind of immersion does not mean that we should not make ethical judgments about Jefferson and the culture he inhabited. But it does make us more thoughtful and perhaps more cautious when we do. Take, for example, David Barton's book, The Jefferson Lies, exposing the myths you've always believed about Thomas Jefferson. If you read The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, you know something about Barton. He is, without peer, today's strongest advocate of the idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. But he doesn't stop there. Barton believes that we need to return the United States to its so-called Christian founding. The study of history is irrelevant for Barton unless it advances his specific political agenda. In 2012, the evangelical publisher Thomas Nelson released The Jefferson Lies. It quickly became a battleground in the ongoing culture wars. Barton challenged virtually everything that Jefferson scholars have said about the signer of the Declaration of Independence and the third president of the United States. These scholars, Barton argued, have portrayed Jefferson as an atheist, a racist, a bigot, and a slaveholder. In his attempt to rescue Jefferson from contemporary scholarship, Barton also pointed to the sinister quote-unquote isms, deconstructionism, post-structuralism, modernism, minimalism, and academic collectivism. These were all his terms 
behind these efforts to discredit the Virginian. In the end, Barton's Thomas Jefferson looked more like a 21st century member of the Christian right than a product of the 18th century world in which he lived. Barton argued that Jefferson used federal funds to promote missions to Native American tribes, rarely questioned the orthodox Christian beliefs of his time, rejected the idea of the separation of church and state, did not have a child with his slave Sally Hemings, tried to establish a theological professorship at his public and non-sectarian University of Virginia, founded the Virginia Bible Society, and did not produce a version of the Gospels, which we today often refer to as the so-called Jefferson Bible, void of Jesus' miracles. Jefferson scholars dismissed the book as little more than political propaganda. Many of them just simply ignored it. Martin Marty of the University of Chicago, the Dean of American Church Historians, said that the book should be named Barton's Lies About Jefferson. Evangelical historians found Barton's portrayal of Thomas Jefferson to be unrecognizable. A group of evangelical African-American pastors in Cincinnati criticized Barton for refusing to expose Jefferson as a racist and a slaveholder and petitioned Thomas Nelson to pull the book from publication. But the strongest attack on Barton's work came from Warren Throckmorton and Michael Coulter, professors at Grove City College, a Christian college in western Pennsylvania with deeply conservative political roots. Throckmorton and Coulter published, first in an ebook form and then later in print, Getting Jefferson Right, Fact-Checking Claims About Our Third President. Throckmorton and Coulter never claimed to be historians. Throckmorton is a psychology professor and Coulter is a political scientist. But they did prove to be excellent fact-checkers. In a style that can only be described as blow-by-blow, these scholars debunked virtually every claim that Barton made about Jefferson. Eventually, the conservative evangelicals who supported Barton became concerned about the veracity and integrity of the Jefferson lies. J. Richards, an evangelical Christian philosopher and intelligent design advocate affiliated with the Discovery Institute in Seattle, gathered together a team of conservative evangelical historians to evaluate the book. These historians found the book to be inadequate in its treatment of Jefferson and filled with historical errors in fact. In light of the committee's recommendation, Thomas Nelson Publishers pulled the book from print. Throughout the entire ordeal, Barton defended his scholarship in the Jefferson Lies and actually seemed surprised that Thomas Nelson decided to remove it from print. He pitched the book to other publishers, and it was eventually published again in fall 2015 by the right-wing website WorldNet Daily. Barton continues to deny that there is anything wrong with his research or his portrayal of Jefferson. He gives his side of the story in the new edition. He claims that the book was rejected by Thomas Nelson because the evangelical publisher fell victim to, quote, a scourge of political correctness, unquote. In the wake of the Jefferson Lies controversy, Barton continues to promote the idea through lectures, a radio show, and now a weekly television program that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and Jefferson helped to create that Christian nation. Barton has also become more active in the political realm through his relationship with candidate Ted Cruz. 
but his standing as an honest broker of the past has been discredited by nearly every evangelical historian in the country. There is a lesson in the whole David Barton Thomas Jefferson affair that goes beyond fact-checking. Jefferson and all the Founding Fathers are invoked every day to help us construct a usable past in 21st century America. But due to the complexity of the Founders, and for that matter, all the human beings we encounter in history, creating such a usable past will always be fraught with problems. As I tell my students, somewhat controversially I might add, there are no heroes in history. Yes, people do heroic things, but all human beings are by nature flawed, and thus they are sometimes unusable. Let's remember this the next time we invoke the founders to get us where we want to go. Thanks, John. And I think this is an excellent lead-in to today's interview. Our guests today are Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf, authors of the recently released Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson, and the Empire of the Imagination. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School. She won the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2009 for the Hemingses of Monticello, an American family a subject she had previously written about in her book, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy. Her honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Genius Fellows Award, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. Peter Onuf is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Virginia, and Senior Research Fellow at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. He is the author and editor of multiple books about Jefferson, including Jefferson's Empire, The Language of American Nationhood, The Mind of Thomas Jefferson, and Jeffersonian Legacies. He is also the 18th Century Guy on the popular American History radio program, Backstory with the American History Guys. Our guests today are Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter S. Onif. They are the authors of a brand new book entitled Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. Annette and Peter, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Great to be here, John. Yeah, it's great to have you guys on. Um, I just finished the book this morning. Excellent. Uh, I would even say it's a it's a page turner. Um, but tell me about the title of the book. Uh, you you uh, you use this phrase, "most blessed of the patriarchs." I know it comes from a letter from Jefferson, but this kind of theme of Jefferson as a patriarch, as a master, as a as a head of a family, kind of pervades this book. Uh, tell us a little bit how you're using this phrase uh, as you uh, sort of weave it throughout your narrative. We think the term patriarch is really illuminating, that he would call himself one uh, 
at a time when we think of him as an iconic Democrat, as somebody who's promoting equality and government by consent, uh, how do patriarchs fit into this? And I think that is the clue to the larger story. Uh, he's talking about his relationship to the land he owns and the people who live there, including enslaved people. And so that idea is uh, an opening to understanding how he can answer the questions so many Americans have about him. How can he reconcile his entanglement in slavery with his advocacy of natural rights? And his idea of himself as a patriarch, as a person who was responsible for people who had uh, enormous power, but it was power with responsibility. And that's how he rationalized it. I mean, it, people think of him as this contradictory figure, as if there must have been some sort of war going on within with him, within him. Yeah. But there really wasn't. Uh, he was pretty much, I think, settled. We think settled with himself, and it was pretty clear to him what he was doing in the world. Yeah, then that then leads then to the subtitle, right? The Empire of the Imagination. I mean, there's this sense of sort of self-construction, right, in the book. Tell me a little bit more about that Empire of Imagination uh, that you use in the subtitle. Well, this is it's sort of made up of all the things, the influences that uh, made him who he was. He imagined himself as an actor in the world. He had a vision about, he's very often called a visionary, uh, but he was a person who imagined a world and his place within it. And he thought about the United States of America as this expansive place uh, that had a future that he wanted to help shape. And he read books. He had experiences. He um, sort of took in everything there was to take in about Virginia and thinking about Virginia. And I guess it comes to this to this notion of his vision. It's sort of synonymous with vision, I think, and his imagination uh, was something that fired him. And I like that idea of uh, vision, uh, Annette, because uh, think of what you see and how far you can see and then what you overlook. Uh, and uh, we play a little bit with the idea that he's on a mountaintop, as visitors did. Uh, and the, on the mountaintop, he can see far into the future and look west, literally into the future of America. Uh, yet there's a lot that he will not let himself see. Uh, he doesn't have a good perspective on what's right around him, we might say. Uh, and I think that's right. Uh, he's, he lives in this vision, and it's a vision that, in a way, justifies uh, the way he lives his life on this mountaintop. Yeah, I want to come back to that sort of idea of a vision, and especially the uh, the inherent, what today in the 21st century we may think of the contradiction, which you're arguing he didn't see these as contradictory things at all, especially as relation to, in relationship to slavery. Let me, let, me ask a, let me ask another question. As you sort of move through the book, uh, you have this great chapter on Jefferson uh, as a plantation owner. Now, one of the things that a student in, say, my general education U.S. survey course might take away, if they take away anything, right, from a lecture on Jefferson was that was that somehow he was a champion of the farmers, right, the ordinary farmer, the yeoman farmer, the, the agrarian vision, you know, and perhaps even, you know, he was a farmer himself. You know, you have those famous words, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. I believe that comes from the, yeah. the, the notes on the state of Virginia. 
you, yeah. you actually, though, argue that Jefferson, I don't think you used the term hated, but something close. You know, really, well, this, I, is no, this is no argument, is it, Annette? No. He really did not like farming, right? <laughs> it was not, I mean, he he romanticized. Did you remember in, in yeah. one, he's talking and when he's president, he says he, you know, he's fond of farming, but he knew nothing about it. And he's in his 50s at that moment. And then the right. other quote where he says that he's never seen a hogshead of his tobacco packed in his life. And again, this is a man in his 50s. Uh, we know what Jefferson is interested in. When Jefferson is obsessed with something, he's, you know, writing about it all the time. It's something that occupies him all the time. He was occupied by the farm in a very, very pedestrian sort of way. I mean, of course, he had to pay attention to what was going on. But that agriculture did not fire his imagination the way building did, for example, or the way music did. I mean, he you know, talked about planting, you know, hundreds of peach trees. Well, of course, somebody else was planting that. I mean, he did go and piddle around in the garden a bit, but not... Um, you know, this was not his real interest. He was a mechanic. He was a builder, uh, much more so than a farmer. He was enthusiastic for the agricultural stage of development. He nice. thought that he did champion farmers, you know, out there. But that was not something that fired his imagination, the way being an architect, being a musician, being a politician, all those kinds of things. He was born a farmer, and he had to pay attention to this stuff. But as soon as he could sort of offload this onto his grandson, uh, who took over the farm when he was uh, in retirement, he did so. And as we say, you know, agricultural production ramped up. <laughs> yeah, but then, but but you do, you do, uh, you know, seem to suggest that he likes this kind of agricultural life in this almost kind of Greek and Roman sort of classical sense. I don't think you actually talk about sort of any kind of classical influences here, like Virgil or something like that. But you do mention the the Monticello as a sort of, I think you use the term backdrop or something similar to to this intellectual sort of scholar farmer, right? This this kind of. Yeah. It was a setting for him, you know, yeah. this beautiful scene with fruit trees and a very, you know, manicured lawn and so forth. But what he spent most of his time doing, he lived the life of a writer. He was right. in his office writing. He, you know, rode around his farms, but he was writing to see basically what was going on. But very often he, he was on his way to one of his manufacturing uh, sure. enterprises, the mill, um, or out to, you know, walking around to the nailery and so forth, or dealing with John Hemmings, who was building stuff. So, yeah, it was it was a beautiful setting for him, but it was a setting where he did other things that interested him more. Sure. Right, but he, he does have a vision, not of farm building, it doesn't interest him, and, and that's exactly right, but a family building, it's what happens on farms. And that uh, Greek or Roman uh, pastoral image that you're talking about, John, uh, that suggests an idealized site for the what we call the nuclear family forming a household uh, and achieving a kind of self-sufficiency, an idealized self-sufficiency. Uh, so that's not real farming. Uh, that's, uh, you might say, more than book farming even. He reads books about agriculture, but it's, uh, it's visionary farming. It's farming for the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Now, the speaker, Peter, you just mentioned something about the family. Uh, obviously, when you write about Jefferson's family in this book, uh, it's much more complicated than most of us normally think because, of course, because of Annette's work, right, we now know that the Hemings family uh, is also in the mix when, when, when we start thinking about family. Talk a little bit, and I know, Annette, you've spent a lot of your career writing about this, so let, let's just try to give the, the short version, right? Um, but, but what role, how do the Hemings is fit into this Jeffersonian, if you will, understanding of the family or his role as a patriarch, both in Monticello and I think you make a compelling case beyond Monticello, even in a sort of, you know, in France too, right? Yes. Well, I mean, the Hemings is, it's a complicated case. I mean, it's sort of the quintessential family connection for him right. because the six um, children of John Wales and Elizabeth Hemings uh, were... Jefferson's wife's half-siblings. So his connection to them begins very early on. It's synonymous with his marriage. When he begins life as a family man, they are there. Uh, Before, while he's courting Martha, there are references in the the memorandum books to giving tips to, you know, the kids, James and Robert, um, or, or Elizabeth Hemings and so forth. So they begin when his life as a husband and father begins. So that's one segment of it. Then, of course, in France, uh, when his connection to Sally Hemings began, this is extended. And his understanding of himself as a patriarch is sort of seen within the confines of what uh, he, Madison Hemings uh, said. He promised Sally Hemings that if she would come back uh, with him from France, she would have a good life in the United States and in Virginia, and that her children would be freed, their children would be freed when they were grown. So as an enslaved, as father of enslaved people, men who had children with enslaved women had a way of handling that. I mean, a, a very often people look at this situation and say, well, he's not like a father, thinking that he should be like a father that he would be to legal white children and, you know, send them to school. And, you know, that's not the way this was handled. He acts towards them the way uh, fathers who cared anything at all about the fact that they were connected to these children acted. You know, he had them trained as carpenters. He spent time with them and John Hemings, and he freed them when they were 21. As a patriarch there, the patriarch who is handling children who cannot be a part of his legal family. And that's a separate separate way of doing things. So his idea of patriarchy there was getting them out of slavery. And I think, obviously, probably wishing them into whiteness, as the two first ones, the oldest ones did, who went into the white world. And eventually Eston did. But I, can't only, I can only imagine that he wanted all of them to do that. But he certainly wanted them to be free and prepared them to do that. And, and that's talking about the capacious sense of family that a great patriarch of old would have, a family that includes bonds people and a special group of bonds people who are destined for freedom and perhaps for whiteness. But I think there's another dimension to this, and that is uh, that Jefferson longed for the family he had lost. He idealized a nuclear family, and what Annette has just described is anything but a nuclear family. And the white family he assembled at Monticello in his uh, later years, uh, when he returned from France, was nothing like a nuclear family. And I, I think there's a, a kind of dialectic going on between Jefferson's life experiences, which are often with that sense of longing and desperation 
uh, and uh, uh, the the real circumstances of his life. He and that he imagines for the American people something that he doesn't really have for himself. That's that's the amazing thing about it. I mean, he never. We talk about the importance of home. Uh, to him, and yet, if you look at his life, he leaves Shadwell when he's three. Um, he goes back to Monticello briefly, and then he's to boarding school, to two successive boarding schools, and then he's to William and Mary. I mean, he's not at home that much, even when he marries and they yeah. move to Monticello. He spends a great deal of time at Elk, Elk Hill, you know, the, uh, the, the plantation house of his wife. Uh, when she was married to to her first husband, you know he is away a lot from home, and so he idealizes home and he idealizes family, just as Peter said, because he does not have the set sort of nuclear family that everybody uh, imagines that he idealizes. Yeah, I almost you know when I was reading the book, I almost get this kind of you know it's like I'm, I'm we're, we're talking here about like Vito Corleone or something, you know this this kind of like like patriarchal figure who has this sort of broken family and everybody's, you know, uh, it, it's dysfunctional and so forth, but yet he believes this kind of, you know, this kind of, and has this imagined sense that, you know, the family, the family. You know, yeah, yeah. I think so you're onto something, John. I think there's a combination of a kind of megalomania, uh, which I yeah. think uh, <laughs> yeah. against evokes, but also of he sublimates or loses himself in this vision of a family of families that is the nation. He thinks he's self-effacing. It's a, yeah. a term that's been used about Jefferson by Jay Flegelman, the famous uh, literary scholar, uh, that he doesn't want people to see him. He's doing this for the people. That's why he's president when he's president. Uh, yet we recognize in that a, a kind of unacknowledged lust for power and well, dominion, or you might say empire. Well, wait, wait. Okay, okay. Uh-oh. Um, Here we go. Good. We have we have the well, two authors <laughs> arguing with each other. This, this on, makes, on this the makes for a good podcast. Go ahead. The situation that he's in, he loses his wife. Yeah. You know, and he is the father of two young girls at a time period when men were not, you know, domestic. Uh, they were. He was. He's been in a tough situation. So he is. He is a widower. And then when his daughter marries, her husband is effectively, uh, you know, disinherited by his father. So he has to become a surrogate father to this young man who, whose father has sort of, who's married a 17-year-old girl and gone off and made his own family. And then if you think about his grandchildren, he is the grand, his grandchildren have one of the four possible grandparents they could have had. So he, there, there's no grandmother here. There's no woman. There's no woman of his status uh, who step in and help. So I, I would say, give the guy a break here. I mean, this is not... <laughs> I think one of the things we're trying to do, and Annette is brilliant at this, is to sympathetic, sympathetically enter in to Jefferson's situation. What is he experiencing? Right. And that you could call that, and Annette would call it a cheap shot when I call him megalomaniac. Sure. But I was just picking up on your cue, John. Yes, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was my all my fault. By the way, uh, for listeners, um, 
Uh, Annette and Peter are actually launching the national launch of their book is tomorrow night in Monticello. So hopefully, hopefully they can work out, you know, this might be a dry run for them. You know, this might be a, this might be a, you know, an, an opportunity to work out all the kinks before they go on their big national book tour. Right. Peter, let me follow up on something that you, uh, that you mentioned too, and, and uh, sort of ask you to elaborate a little bit more because the family, right. Is at the heart of, uh, Jefferson's vision of the American Republic, right? So, so, you know, whatever his family happens to look like and how, you know, whatever he imagines it to be, uh, in terms of his political philosophy and perhaps even his disagreements with, uh, you know, the Federalists in the 1790s and so forth, uh, you seem to make a compelling case, both of you seem to make a compelling case that, that, you know, a lot of the differences revolve around sort of his conception of the family, could you elaborate on that a little bit? I would just uh, underline the key word consent. Yeah. Uh, that is what establishes the original social unit, what we call the nuclear family, the reproductive family, uh, the household family. And uh, that notion of consent justifies male domination in an early modern uh, 18th century British American society with a doctrine, legal doctrine of coverture. Uh, the the wife loses her uh, civil identity largely, doesn't own property. Uh, this this is the the man's responsibility, and it is according to Jefferson natural. It follows from the distinctions that are come from nature. They're not artificially imposed the way aristocracy or monarchy is artificially imposed. Yet consent in the broader sense, is an agreement among families, and that would be directly among patriarchs, among fathers. And, and there we have that notion of equality surfacing. I, I think in that idea of consent, and uh, we would suggest family values, you get both right. sides of Jefferson. That is, the, the, uh, the patriarchal domination within his own domain, uh, and that notion of a, of a democratic equality of fathers of patriarchs sure let's uh, let's go let's um talk a little bit about france because france uh jefferson's experience in france i think is a, is a vital part of of your argument france changes him in significant ways how does france change his view whether it be his view of the family uh his view of virginia or even more specifically monticello his view of republican government because you make you both make a very strong argument that you know you know, there's the pre-France Jefferson and the post-France Jefferson in some ways. Not that there's not con not that there's not continuity, right? But but something happens in France after he gets back from France. Well, I'd add I just add slavery to the list and ask slavery. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's yeah. I think the most important thing we offer here. Well, we do talk about how how he's feeling when he leaves uh, Virginia. He's upset because he has had um, a terrible time as the war governor. Uh, his wife has died, a shattering experience for him, and he's not feeling so great about the world that he lives in. And he goes to this place that he has longed to see, uh, Europe, and to see, you know, the fashionable society, hear the music and all of the, the things that are, are part of a European high culture. And some of the things he loves deeply and other things frighten him. And he begins to think of his society um, as not as bad as he thought it was. Um, he begins to well. He certainly he learns a lot as as um, as as a 
eventually becoming the replacement for Benjamin Franklin. Um, he, he does better as an ambassador than he did uh, as governor. He's comfortable there in that particular role. But he looks around him and he sees all of the tremendous problems that exist in French society. The peasants are, are starving, uh, the huge inequality that he sees, the riches, the gap between the rich and the poor. And he talks about ways uh, that inequality is a terrible thing and the kind of tax policies that should be enacted in order to smooth that out. And he makes a, a sort of peace with slavery, the institution of slavery at, at home, yep. because he says, you know, it's taken them almost a thousand years to get to the point where they're at a pre-revolutionary state, as he's, you know, their uh, France is about to blow up. And he has this understanding that, well, maybe it's going to take us time, and maybe this could be handled with enlightenment and in the full fullness of time slavery will disappear and he becomes less you know he doesn't talk anymore about slavery as a state of war he's there with the hemmings family we talk about how living there with james and sally hemmings who become the face of slavery for him uh, sally hemmings um obviously very close to him uh he pays them wages they become family in an even deeper way to him and he sees himself as a slaveholder through his relationship with them, which, of course, bears no relationship to what is, would be going down, on with the people down the mountain. And he starts to think about amelioration, um, that ameliorating slavery. I can be a, quote, unquote, good slave owner until that day when slavery is over. And he had not talked about that in, in the same way before he was in France. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and, and it gives him a new sense of time and of space. Uh, I love that point about uh, looking back at European history, the old world, and what is uh, unfolding in the new world. Uh, we are going to perfect this. We're going to deal with this in the fullness of time. And if you have that sense of uh, the unfolding generations, each generation taking on a, a new assignment, new challenges, uh, uh, the light spreads. I mean, this is very powerful. Jefferson lived a very gray experience in Virginia, a gray to black. It was not happy. But America looks like this bright place, the shining hope for mankind from across the ocean. And so it has to happen that in the future, uh, Americans, because they are enlightened and therefore driven by their moral sense, are going to do something about slavery. In the meantime, and I think that's the point uh, we're making. In the meantime, uh, you've got to uh, you've got to treat your slaves well. Uh, you have to recognize their humanity, and uh, you have to recognize that that injustice can't be rectified yet, uh, but it can be, as Annette says, ameliorated. And that, of course, is the terrible turn, because once you start thinking that you can make slavery better, um, <laughs> yes. within slavery better, then you become more self-satisfied and that this is something that you can push off to the future. You satisfy yourself that you are, quote, you know, doing the best that I can do and there's no urgency to it. And of course, there are urgency for other things. Of course, he comes back and then there's, you know, uh, the 1790s and the fight with Hamilton and all this other stuff and he goes on to something else. Let me, let me ask you a question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, I just want to add this, John, because I can't help it. Uh, it's so much fun talking with you guys. Uh, and then I was just thinking about the idea of a lawgiver, and often uh, we think of the founders, the revolutionaries, as seeing themselves in these inflated terms as lawgivers. But Jefferson's uh, different than the other founders. 
he's not going to solve all problems now by giving the law for all time. He's doing what he can now to make possible law giving by the people in the future. So, so let me let me ask you really quick as we're sort of wrapping up here. What, as historians, right? You know, obviously, someone who is not sort of historically minded, or when they think about Jefferson and slavery, uh, you know, they're immediately, you know, they're going to respond. You know, how do, how does how is this is he's a hypocrite? You know, you you know you're, you're Jefferson scholars, right? You know this. You know, you talk about, but yet you talk about as historians, or at least you try to reconcile these two things. This I think you call it a strange marriage at one point between the sort of 18th century revolutionary anti slavery thought of the day and, you know, this kind of 19th century pre-Civil War, uh, I think you the, I have a quote here, pro-slavery fantasies of happy relations between masters and slaves. And, and back to the point you made, both of you made very early in the podcast, it's clear that there's no contradiction in Jefferson's mind, but how do you respond to the you know, the, the critic of the book, the activist, or, you know, somebody who's going to say, how can you just leave it there? Come on, historians. You know how can how can you just say he had both? I mean, you know, talk about the role of a historian here in trying to understand Jefferson, because a lot of our listeners are not historians, and I've been trying to use this podcast to get them to try to understand the way historians approach uh, information, as opposed to say an ethicist or uh, you know someone who's interested in moral philosophy or something to that extent. Well, I, I'd start by answering, and I'm uh, welcoming the inter- interruption from uh, my beloved co-author. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I'd start by saying, first, we need to establish uh, Jefferson's moral horizons. How does he see the world? And we have to understand the relative importance of, uh, of, the, of slavery in the light of the fundamental challenge of liberating a people, the American people, and he means white American people, Virginians and their fellow Americans, to govern themselves. And uh, this is what seems strangest to us today, that you could possibly believe that democratic government is an engine for moral progress. Mm -hmm. Let the people speak, let their will be expressed, and it will lead toward the light. That notion of it's uh, it's almost teleological. It's almost religious. It's as if uh, if you believe in this, if you have faith in the people, one day uh, this will happen. And I think it's the idea of progress that's the the key right, that sure. they, and, he and, has. Yeah, and where he is at this moment, he's at the beginning of a country. It's a country yeah. that he helped to found. He, this is a new thing in the world. He says, you know, there's nothing there. You can, you, we can't say that there's nothing new under the sun. This is new, and we're going to do this differently. And it's very difficult for us at this point in our history to take the notion of inevitable progress seriously. But he actually believed it. He actually thought that things would get better and better and better. And so, you know, this the marriage comes because he never makes the pivot to you know 19th century totally to pro, pro-slavery ideology, where people right. just say, you know, they go from saying slavery was a necessary evil to saying it's a positive good. It's a great thing. He never said that. And his grandson's generation, I was going through his grandson, one of his grandson's journals, and he's sort of picking out passages from the Old Testament uh, to, that justify slavery. Jefferson would never do that. That, that was not his world. So he's, he's in between this. Someone who says slavery is wrong, but while we're in it, 
here's how you are supposed to conduct yourself as a slave owner, which, as we say, leads you eventually uh, into the morass of, of maybe post-slavery ideology. If he'd lived another 10 or 15 years, we don't know what he would have been like. I know Madison didn't make the, make the pivot ever, so maybe he wouldn't have. But that's what the marriage is. He knows that slavery is wrong, but he has this belief in inevitable progress, which we find hard to take hey, hey. Uh, because we, we're much more cynical. No, that's I think that positive, that positive good idea is important because the 19th century idea is positivism, and that is what is is right in some fundamental sense. It's a demystified, disenchanted world, and we live in it and uh, and try to make our place in it, and eventually it will be a struggle for the survival of the fittest. Uh, nasty right. business. This is realism. Uh, but uh, for Jefferson, he, there's, a, there's this difference between the way things are and the way they should be. And I think it's a measure of our disenchantment with the world, our cynicism, that we focus on the failures of the founding generation uh, because we don't have a, any hope in the future. So we're blaming them. And I think that's yeah. we need to reflect a little bit more on this than uh, taking cheap shots at somebody who is radically imperfect, as yeah. uh, at least uh, I am, and I think yeah. maybe even Annette is too. <laughs> Even in that too, right? No, I love it. I, I love I love that. Um, I, I'd be remiss because two of my favorite chapters in the book are actually the music and religion chapter. So, so can I ask you one more question, at least on the music? Um, you know, this is the first, I'm not a Jefferson scholar, you know, so this is the first thing I've ever read about Jefferson's love of music. Can you, can you at least talk about that? I think it's the next to the last chapter where you talk about the role of music in his life. Well, it's critical to him. We thought it was important to talk about something other than the things that would, you know, the sort of public uh, acts that obsess all of us. This, he said music was the favorite passion of his soul. Uh, you know, he sang, he, you know, he danced, he played music, he played exactly. instruments and so forth. And this was a way of binding him to people, binding him to family. This was part of family as well. Uh this is the one thing that from you know cradle to grave that sort of suffused his life. And we didn't think that you could have a portrait thinking about what made this man without focusing on that. Do you know, do you know like what, what so kind of songs he would have sang? I mean, yeah. uh, he, well, yes, uh, he's, <laughs> he's not singing classical songs. Well, that's what I said. I mean, there's, there's usually not words right to classical songs. So he must've been singing something popular, I right? Or, there, were some, well, there were operas, Okay, operas, okay. Uh, operas and things of that nature. Later on, uh, there were popular tunes that he sang. He, as we suggest, once he actually gets a country, he begins to uh, respect the traditions of the country, and so he, you know, he doesn't mind uh, more. Uh, you know, I don't want to say lowbrow, but not classical music. So, yeah, music of the people. I think, Annette, is the way to put it. This is the era. One of the things I found most fascinating was this is the birth of what you might call folk music. Yeah. Uh, celebrating the music of the people, uh, and it's pouring off London presses, uh, and uh, and Jefferson's a consumer. You can find out uh, because of the transcriptions and the uh, 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 that are done at this time of the music of uh, Scotland and Ireland and England. Uh, these are the tunes that Jefferson's ancestors. I have to throw in Wales then uh, brought with them, uh, and uh, they they resonate in the Virginia countryside. Uh, I think one of the distinctions that we draw is that he's not really listening to the music of enslaved people. Uh, it's the folk, the white folk who uh, who made Virginia. Yeah, and also, I mean, he liked to go to music, 
you like musical theater, what would have been musical theater. So those songs that he saw when he went to the theater in Williamsburg would have been tunes that he, he sang as well. Sure, sure. Well, Matt, how about Jefferson well, and Liberty? Would you have uh, liked Jefferson and Liberty? <laughs> the songs about himself? <laughs> I'm sure. <Yeah. laughs> well, our, our time is about up. The book is Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. We have been talking uh, with Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onef, the co-authors of this book. Thank you so much for taking some time on the almost the eve of your national tour to come on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast and talk with us. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you for asking us. This is the locker room before the show. We're going to yeah, right, exactly. Room. And, and yeah. uh, I hope I hope the tour goes well. Thanks Thank again. So much. That sounds like a fascinating book. I think it will bring together a number of really interesting historiographical conversations. On the one hand, you have this trend we call Founders Chic, in which uh, popular presses continue to put out books about the founding fathers. And those books continue to drive historical book sales at a lot of bookstores around the country. But both Gordon Reed and Onuf bring a level of critical analysis to their work that is so often missing in pop nonfiction. So I'd say this book is a good chance of bridging that chasm that so often separates academic and popular history. Yeah, I, I like I said on in the interview, I read it last weekend, and I've been recommending it. I must have recommended it to five or six people already. It's just very well written, and I think the book really captures the complexity of Jefferson's life. Um, you know, when I was reading it, you know, some of you know I. I, I pretty active on Twitter. So when I was reading it, I wanted to tweet a quote out from the book, but uh, I couldn't find a good one. So this is what I ended up tweeting. I wrote, uh, quote, I want a quote from Gordon Reed and Onus' new biography of TJ, but I can't find a quote that won't be misunderstood without context. Because, you know, everything they say, uh, you know, they say Jefferson is sort of anti-slavery, but you can't understand him as being anti-slavery unless you understand what they mean by that and the complexities and the tensions that exist uh, in his life. So those are the those are probably the best history books to read where there's tension and there's there's complexity and there's nuance. And it's not simply, like I said in the uh, audio essay, the story I just told, it's not simply about you know, using the past to promote some kind of agenda. You know, as I, also as I read the book, you know, they, they paint Jefferson as this guy sort of very rooted in Monticello, although some, some, in some ways that's an act of Jefferson's imagination, as we talked about in the interview. But also, you know, someone's very rooted in a, in a sort of piece of earth, a piece of land, a place, you know, on top of the mountaintop here, you know, a, a sense of home, right? His identity is very much rooted in this sense of home, but yet he's also a man of the Enlightenment. So, you know, how fitting, right? Uh, the way of improvement kind of leads home might be, at least in some ways, a kind of metaphor for capturing some of uh, some of Jefferson's life. I was going to bring that up in the interview. I just didn't want to sound too self-promoting. <laughs> but if you, if you want to, uh, you know, we talked about this idea, this idea of the way of improvement leads home in episode zero. So go back and, you know, if you want to know what that phrase means and how we've been using it, uh, go back and check that out again. So, you know, Drew, both Gordon Reed and Onif just so inspire me uh, as a historian. And, 
looking at them work as historians. You know, I, I wanted to, if we had time, I would have brought up the very, the different uh, things going on at, at Harvard Law School recently. Uh, some of you may have followed this account where Harvard Law School, uh, a committee decided that they were going to remove a shield, the, uh, the law school shield, because it has these images of sheaths of wheat that represented the, the slavery and the sort of world of the founder of Harvard Law School, Isaac Royal. Isaac Royal was um, the son of a Caribbean slave trader, founded Harvard Law School, and the the shield that was designed to reflect Harvard Law School is is represents the institution of slavery. So there was this huge debate, and it was decided, I think, uh, with only one or two dissenting voices, the only faculty who dissented uh, to removing the shield, the slave, uh, you know, with the slave image on it, was was Gordon Reed. And you know, let me read you briefly what how the New York Times reported reported on uh, Gordon Reed's dissent. Uh, the New York Times wrote in her dissent, which actually early on they described it as a passionate dissent, but in her dissent, Ms. Gordon Reed wrote that erase the royals and their shield, I might add, would also extinguish the memory of the slaves whose, slaves whose labor contributed to the founding of the law school. Quote, people should have to think about slavery when they think of the, the Harvard shield, Reed mentioned. But from now on, with a narrative that emphasizes the enslaved, not the royal family. So, you know, here's this historian making this strong case that we need to keep that shield up as a reminder of the roots of Harvard Law School. And maybe in a sense, you know, that we we remember this so we don't go that direction again. Um, you know, Onus the same way in terms of inspiring. You know, he often says, I love when he says on backstory when addressing these kinds of public questions about monuments and so forth. You know, he says, we need more history, not less, because the history reminds us of the mistakes that we've perhaps made in the past. Yeah, and this actually reminds me of episode one with Jim Grossman, in which he talks about uh, the problems with uh, erasure in the uh, way we think about public memorials. Uh, which got me to think about the the debate about the Jefferson statue at the University of Missouri. Uh, and and in the process of protesting this statue, I remember this this wonderfully evocative picture of post-it notes with all of these issues of slaveholder, bigot, racist, ri- placed on top of the statue of Thomas Jefferson. And all I could think about is if you remove that statue, you lose that opportunity to really kind of engage with that history. Instead, there's just a blank space there. There's nothing to to point to the, um, you know, that, that I'm now thinking of Edmund Morgan, the, um, the, the American paradox of the, the slaveholder who is also the great advocate for American freedom, right? We need those reminders because by engaging with them, we are reminded that our history is fraught with these kinds of contradictions and these paradoxes. No, I think you're absolutely right, Drew. And the, uh, you know, as, as sort of, you know, the, the post-it note thing, as much as those, those post-it notes may not reflect the kind of complexity of Jefferson's life that 
that I talked about in the essay in this episode and that Annette Gordon-Reed and Onif talked about, it still is a way of, of engaging with the past and opening up a conversation that could lead to an even richer and deeper understanding of someone like Jefferson or, for that matter, any of the Founding Fathers. So again, these are tough questions. Uh, we need to keep wrestling with them. That's what education is all about. That's what the study of history is all about. But I'm really thankful to people like Gordon-Reed and Onif who uh, help us sort all of this out. Well, Drew, Mr. Producer, is that a wrap? That's a wrap. Great. Well, I hope you enjoyed our episode today. And as you continue to think historically about the past, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests, Peter Onuf and Annette Gordon-Reed. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.